Welcome to the HODLcast, your source for Bitcoin inspiration and education. Hello everyone and welcome to the HODLcast. Today is October 5th and uh, it's uh, kind of a <laughs> day to remember from Mr. McAfee anyway. He just was arrested, one of my former guests. Um, on some, I guess, ICO, you know, pump and dump charges from the SEC and also for tax evasion. So I heard he was arrested a few hours ago in Spain and um, hope he's, I'm sure he'll make some, <laughs> some friends in the jail and hopefully, you know, uh, get it all sorted out fairly soon. Um, today, today we're going to talk about the New York bit license as it applies to BTM or Bitcoin ATM kiosks that are located in places outside of New York. I uh, recently had a client to ask me this question. They, they were advised by their compliance officer that they need to block every New York resident that goes up to their machine with a um, New York driver's license. And, you know, that seemed like a pretty big overreach of New York's power. But when I read the bit license, it actually is how it's written in the license. So, you know, we're just going to go through basically all the reasons why that's an unconstitutional overreach on behalf of New York. So, um, you know, first of all, I guess we're need to state not aware i've i've never heard of a case so if you know if one exists and i missed it uh you know that's pretty bad on my part but i don't think new york has exerted the bit license law on any transactions that are conducted by new york residents while they're located outside of the state meaning like outside new york outside the country outside you know on a federally established tribal reservation if they're going to say they have jurisdiction on their residents when the residents are outside new york not only does that apply to new jersey it also applies to when that customer is traveling to australia you know the way it would be written so that's um you know that's a pretty long arm they think they have if if they really um were to try and apply it in that in that fashion and then um, you know, there's also some significant obstacles for a state to try and assert law, its law on any other kind of out-of-state activities. And that's, you know, if we look at, you know, I'm from Canada, so, uh, you know, the first thing I can think of that would be, you know, a common sense comparison here is in Canada, the drinking age in uh, Quebec, or the age to buy cigarettes, too, is... 18 whereas the rest of the country it's 19 or most of the rest of the country and so people can legally go you know drink at age 18 in quebec and they're not expected to follow the rules of their home province and it's the same thing you can think of in america when someone's you know i don't know about the tobacco ages here but if you think about it you know for purchasing marijuana in certain states like colorado or nevada anyone can go up to a store they don't block people whose states say oh these people can't have it in our state doesn't mean that that applies when they go to the store in the in the other state and you can think of it also like driving on a highway you know if, if your state has a speed limit of 60 and the neighboring state has a speed limit of 70 and 
you know, are you expected to drive 60 all the time in the other state just because your home state, um, you know, says that's as fast as you can go there. So when you really think about it, it's kind of silly to to even imagine that this law would be upheld in other states. But, you know, we'd, we need to go through all the rigmarole to make sure giving people the right advice. Um, and, you know, as always, a podcast is not legal advice. This is just my opinion. Um, so the other, you know, things to look at with this is how can how could New York practically um, extend this law? Like, what, how would this really work? So if New York actually expected businesses in other states to investigate, investigate and verify the residence of each customer initiating a transaction and then turn away those customers that are from New York, um, you know, they'd have to define what, it, what New York residence really means in a in a definitive manner like how many days do you have to live there to be a new york resident how many days can you be traveling before you lose your new york residency and you know at the current time no such mechanism exists and then so the actual wording of the bit license is that uh you know virtual business sorry virtual currency business activity that's what that's the activity that they're regulating virtual currency business um, and it means any one of the following types of activities involving new york or new york resident and that's one receiving virtual currency um receiving virtual currency or transmitting virtual currency except where the transaction is undertaken for non-financial purposes and does not involve the transfer or more of than just like a nominal virtual currency storing holding or maintaining custody or control of virtual currency on the behalf of others buying and selling virtual currency as a customer or a business performing exchange services as a customer or business or controlling, administrating, or issuing virtual currency. So under bit license law, a New York resident is defined as any person that resides, is located, has a place of business, or is conducting business in New York. So anyone that meets any of those categories, you know, no one can do virtual currency business with them. Uh, the term resides is not otherwise defined, and there's no clarification provided anywhere else under the bit license law. So we have to take the term in this context, like it's just, you know, that it, it means everything that was just described. Um, you know, whereas like uh, an encyclopedia, so West Encyclopedia says that uh, residence is defined as personal presence at some place of abode, although the domicile and residence of a person are usually in the same place and the two terms are frequently used as if they have the same meaning, they're not synonymous. A person can have two places of residence, such as one in the city and one in the country, but only one domicile. So even right there, you know, we have the, the West Encyclopedia defining residence that you can have too. So if New York is trying to, you know, that, then what, like if you have a home somewhere else, you know, which, which residence do you choose? I, you know, it's, it's pretty arbitrary. Obviously you're going to choose the one not in New York, but, uh, 
anyway so the, the it's too vague the definition is vague it's difficult to understand in this regard and thus it can reasonably be interpreted that bit license law is applying to people who are personally present at a place of abode in new york um that's you know what residents can be defined as so then there's the word domicile and that's like a more specific term and it could be interpreted to mean that the legislator intended to regulate transactions with those who are presently in new york and not with those who are elsewhere even if they are residents of new york at the time so um the topic of whether the law can apply to out-of-state businesses that are addressed in new york it's answered by the New York Department of Financial Services in their question and answer. So they, the question specifically reads, is an out-of-state business required to obtain a bit license to engage in virtual currency business activity in New York State or with New York State residents? And the answer is yes, a business must obtain a bit license if it engages in virtual currency business activity involving New York State or any person that resides, is located, has a place of business, or is conducting business in New York State. So, uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but let's look at now, you know, at the, the constitutional analysis of this. So, as a matter of U.S. constitutional law, one state is simply not permitted, even incidentally, to intrude upon the interstate commerce of the other state. Interstate commerce just means business. Like you can't think of it as like a you know a drug turf war. <laughs> the Crips have one state, the Bloods have the other state. You can't go on to that other state and sell stuff or prohibit them from selling stuff. It's just it's just the rules. Um, so you know, but people are always testing them, and it's it's a heavily litigated area. And when some things are heavily litigated, often case law can kind of spike into different factions depending on different states and that's what we have in this choice of law on the state level like two states will get in a fight you know 50 years ago and they'll determine a case and then say it was Florida and Alabama having that state that fight well then the same fight might happen between New York and Connecticut but the judge up there determined it completely differently and then the next case has to build off that previous law. So you, as you can imagine, we have like basically 50 different fragments of how this choice of law works between two states in their commercial turf wars, basically. But the Supreme Court is who is in charge, who they all must look to. So if courts are, if, if someone doesn't know how to answer it, they can look to the Supreme Court and hear the Supreme Court, kind of like for those who are familiar with securities laws, will recognize how the Howey test has been adopted as the main test that people look at to determine if something's an investment contract. Well, the Pike test is considered, um, you know, I don't know if it's it got as much weight as the Howey test or if it's as widely used, but it's, the, it's a main test for determining this. And what it says is, where the state statute regulates even-handedly to effectuate a limit, legitimate local public interest and its effects on interstate commerce are only incidental, it will be upheld unless the burden imposed on such commerce is clearly excessive in relation to the putative local benefits. Again, a <laughs> bit of a mouthful how they write these statutes, but uh, the case developed basically what's become known as the Pike Test that outlines the factors 
of undue burden on interstate commerce. And so those definitive principles for state statutes look at, you know, there has to be a legitimate interest. There has to be a public purpose. So here, you know, what is the legitimate interest? What is the public purpose of having the New York bit license extend to another state? And, you know, all these BTMs are regulated by FinCEN. So any state regulation is, you know, completely duplicative in nature to begin with. So there's a strong argument that none of the states have a legitimate public purpose to regulate these transactions. And most states don't. Most states, even if they do regulate Bitcoin at some level of money transmission, they recognize that a Bitcoin ATM transaction is unique in nature in the fact that it has two people, not three. So it often avoids uh, the need for money transmission licenses, even in states where something like operating a Bitcoin exchange might involve that they don't look at the custody of it. That's a whole nother piece. But, but basically, New York is one of the only places, there's about 10 actually, where, where BTM transactions are, are regulated, but New York's, you know, one of them. And so extending that, you know, legitimate purpose that barely exists or, you know, arguably doesn't exist in the state, but trying to extend that to another state is really, really a far stretch. And then to say that it has a public purpose, um, you know, that argument has been made by Bitwise last year when they were going for their ETF. They were able to show some pretty strong um, numerical proof that all the companies that were regulated by the New York Bit license had a much higher track record for honesty in their transactions. There was a lot less wash trading and um you know there were more respectable exchanges but you know those those exchanges are people are required to act with that level of integrity by the federal regulations not everyone is registered on the federal level even if they should be especially can come exchanges that are you know not american in their domicile they often don't register with FinCEN and so you know it could be argued that the New York states are also the all the you know US based exchanges so they would operate with that level of integrity because of the federal law which applies to them anyway um so we could have a big long discussion on whether the statute is legitimate whether it serves a public purpose but it has to be in the state's power and not designated either to regulate interstate commerce as such or to be discriminative against out-of-state economic interests in favor of private in-state interests in the same market so here i don't think we see like it's it's not giving new york companies an advantage to have this license well that could be argued too because some people might say actually yeah it makes them more trustworthy to have it but um but that's the company's choice if they want to enter new york and get that but they don't need it in other states and it doesn't serve you know it's not within new york's police power really to go after atm providers in other states that are not you know blocking new york um 
And then anyone that's a market participant or similar to like a private equity or has a dormant commerce cause, it can't be a bar to economic decisions, even if they impact or discriminate against interstate commerce. So the Privilege and Immunities Clause, which is found in the Constitution, Article 4, it may also provide a constraint here. And then the effect on interstate commerce has to be incidental rather than the primary purpose of the statute. The interest must be local, um, the statute must regulate even-handedly, and the statute must effectuate its local public interest. Um, so here, I think that's the strongest argument, is that it, well, it, one, it impedes Company A's ability to conduct business in states other than New York by requiring that Company A or, you know, any BTM operator to either obtain an expensive and cumbersome bill license or make an effort so they have to like actively hire someone to review their IDs and go through and block uh, New York licenses from using the machine. So think about it. If someone goes up to a machine and scans their driver's license, there's not usually a way, like I guess the software could have AI on it where it's picks up New York and then immediately blocks that transaction. But typically what happens is the person scans the license and it's stored by the machine and then the compliance officer goes in afterwards. Either the person has already created an account and verified themselves or they can only do a small transaction at the time in case they were putting some fake ID up or something like that, right? So the machine without having someone verify the person. So you have to then hire a compliance officer and pay them their hourly rate to go through and look at every person that's gone to the machine and say, is that one from New York? Is that one from New York? If so, they can't have an account with us to use the machine again in an amount over, say, $500. And then what if that person might be you know, an amazing customer and the ATM is set to make 20% on every transaction. Usually they do make 10 to 20%. So, you know, that's giving up a big business opportunity if they have to block every New York person, especially considering there are not, as far as I know, a lot of opportunity for New York people to use Bitcoin ATMs in their own home state. So often they do have to leave the state. So if someone has one nearby, you know, they can access the whole New York population. It, it would be a huge disadvantage to have to block them. Um, so the interest is not local. It imposes a pattern of multiple inconsistent burdens on other states, and it imposes conflicting laws on the company, you know, the Bitcoin ATM company and interstate enterprise. So, you know, then we get into the, the choice of law analysis test. And the first one, there's, there's a few different ways that courts have looked at this. The first one is the significant contacts test. And I think this should just be the only test we really need to look at. It's the most common sense one. But it says that a contract is governed by law of the state where it is made and that a contract is deemed made in a state where the last act necessary to make it a binding agreement occurs. So if you're thinking of a Bitcoin ATM, I mean, the whole contract really takes place. The person walks up to the machine, the machine offers, like that's the offer of the contract that you can put money in. 
and by accepting the money that's like acceptance that it's gonna you know fulfill its contract by sending the customer bitcoin the customer takes the bitcoin and walks away and the contract is over and so you know the whole thing is short and local in nature it's not like you're sending an email contract on paper you know over the internet so two people are in two different states when the machine is the one that you're contracting with and it's located there you know that's the full extent that you need to really look at for this answer but anyway law is such that you have to analyze it on every different level um so basically you know it's this significant contacts test says so clearly that a binding agreement is occurring you know where the kiosk is located then you have the uh, restatement second of conflicts of law so what the restatements are is basically um, a group of states will get together and say we would like to have a streamlined state law for this topic and then you know a lot of they write it as you know clear and concise and all-encompassing and uh, you know they just uh, some really expert writers get together and and make this the law and then each state can as the as the judge is writing the opinion they can basically pull in the restatement second or restatement third whatever you know whatever what these they get updated every 20 or 30 years but so a lot of states use this um and it said it says i'm not going to read it it's uh, you know kind of long but basically uh in the absence so you can you can write your law into your contract if you have a written contract like say we really wanted to take advantage of wyoming's um bitcoin property laws that put it into the ucc status the uniform commercial code as property rather than um it basically they try and make utility tokens immune from sec regulation by saying it's property but people can access that law by writing into the um writing it into their contract even if neither party is in wyoming or say one company is registered in wyoming the other party is in florida they can choose to follow wyoming's laws on it whereas here they're saying so if if no one did that in this case which uh you know a btm operator could try and do that in their terms of service but i don't think it would hold up i think the the actual fact that they're located in the certain state is going to actually trump the terms of service but don't quote me on that i don't know um but but the factors that they give on the second part of the restatement says in the absence of an effective choice of law by the parties meaning like that they didn't put it in their terms of service or write it into their contract the contracts to be taken into account in applying the principles are to determine the law apl- applicable um to an issue include a the place of contracting so that's the most important b well the factors the place of negotiating the contract in a bitcoin atm transaction that's also you're negotiating it when you're doing it like there's no pre-negotiation of this the place of performance so you know where you get the money out of the kiosk is going to be your place of performance again the location and d the location of the subject matter of the contract so again the location of the btm and e the domicile residence nationality place of incorporation and place of business of the parties 
So, you know, that does matter if, say, the Bitcoin ATM company is domiciled in um, New York, but they place the machine outside of New York, and then a New York resident also goes up to the machine, but it's outside of New York. You're going to have two factors. It's like basically two New York residents are contracting. So does the bit license apply? Well, actually, the other four factors that all say that the location where it's happening is more important than uh, than than that. So um, and then if the place of negotiating the contract and the place of performance are in the same state, the local law of that state is usually applied. So if you can combine two of these together, which in in the BTM transaction, we've got all four out of five. Um, you know, pretty much you're you're looking at the law of the state. Then there is the Lex Loki test, and so this says when two conflicting state laws are in conflict, a form determination is necessary, and the strongest test is the Lex Loki test, which means the law of the state applies based on the location of the transaction or the occurrence that gave rise to the litigation in the first place. And the state where the transaction takes place retains plenary power to make the laws covering anything that is not preempted by the federal constitution, federal statutes, or international treaties ratified by the federal Senate. So that, that is, it's just basically saying that each state is free to make their own laws as long as there's not a conflicting federal law, which on Bitcoin ATM, transactions we know yes the bank secrecy act is overarching all of this um but that you know we're talking about the state law here but they when we just know that the bsa is also going to trump any state law so then the uh the lack of available compliance mechanisms here so if New York actually intended to require that a business in another state determine residency of each customer initiating a transaction and then refusing to conduct business with New York residents to meet constitutional standards, New York would first have to really provide a clear definition of the word resident. And, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's 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 not good enough right now the way they've got it written it's too vague it's difficult to understand and um they need a, a really clear definition of that if they think they're going to apply it um so yeah in conclusion here basically a company can engage in transactions with new york residents as long as the transaction is taking place at a bitcoin atm kiosk that's not located in New York um, and you know and they must comply with the law of whatever state that the the kiosk is located in so um, yeah that's it for today I hope everyone's doing well staying healthy keeping the vitamin C going and uh, uh, until next time have a good one thanks bye